You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. So here's what Lacrosse has recently done. They've taken their 100 plus years of experience to create a new line of lace-up hunting boots called the Navigator Series. Now the Navigator Series comes in two options, the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. Now if you want to find out more about their high-quality awesome boots, you need to go to lacrossefootwear.com. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl right, and Sudro so Boswell. I'm sitting in the basement right now, Ricky Kohler, and some people might know him just from like social media, Facebook posts, things like that, but I feel like you're kind of one of those guys that like you've taken a lot of nice deer in a few different states and you don't have like the big social media or YouTube channel or anything like that. So people don't necessarily know that about you. But I say that just to add some credibility as I'm looking around this room. You've had a lot of success over the last, you know, however many years you've been hunting. And I think that I know from, from my personal standpoint, I'm really curious to hear a little bit more detail about your process and how you go especially from these multiple different states and how you manage that within a particular year and, you know, kind of what you do early season, mid-season, late season, and what your scouting schedule looks like around the year. So, I don't know, do you, do you have anything in particular from a background perspective that you'd like to tell the <laughs> listeners? Yeah, so, yeah, thanks, Garrett, for having me on first off. Um, yeah, I kind of keep a pretty low profile. Um, I don't, I'm not really up on social media too much with the hunting, but I've been passionate about it for a long, long time. Um, from Minnesota, I, I should probably introduce myself and tell you a little bit about that. I'm from Minnesota, Twin Cities. Um, married three little girls, eight, six, and two. And um, bow hunt pretty much exclusively. Um, grew up a family of three boys. I was the oldest and my dad got, uh, introduced us to, you know, duck hunting and pheasant hunting early on, let us walk alongside as he, uh, you know, went. And then at the age of 12, um, started bow hunting with him and um, took my first buck actually at age 12 and was pretty much hooked ever since. So I shot that. Um, but, and Carlos Avery, which you're probably w well aware of, is huge public land piece yep. in Minnesota. And we hung the stands and scouted it out, and it was kind of got me intrigued with it. Um, and and si then, since that happened, have you basically been primarily focused on deer hunting, or do you still do other 
types of hunting and fishing throughout the year? Yeah, I would say earlier on, I kind of did a, a mixed bag. We would do, you know, a Canadian fishing trip with grandpa and uncles and kind of a family thing every year in the summer. Um, I didn't do a ton of scouting or anything at that point in time. Um, and also did quite a bit of bird hunting. Uh, pheasant has been a real passion for my dad. He's always had um, dogs, Labradors usually. Um, so we do that with him, and then as I got older and got into high school, kind of started to get more and more intrigued with uh, bow hunting. I shot my, I would say my first good buck, um, or not, I would say sizable deer, one that you would consider maybe three and a half year old at like age 16. And then in college, I shot my first like five and a half year old buck, and after that buck, I was pretty much stuck on bow hunting and, and just stayed with that. Um, I did a little bit of waterfall hunting just with buddies in college because it was a ton of fun to do and we would do it, you know, kind of work our class schedule around being able to get out midweek when nobody else was out on the on the river. And I enjoyed that, but as I got older and had kids and got married, my time out in the field shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. So it was kind of came down to, for me, like if, if I want to be good at something i kind of got to narrow it down to one focus so right i decided to start focusing more on whitetails gotcha and so within your your strategy of just focusing on whitetails do you have kind of a maximum or minimum amount of states that you want to try and focus on because obviously i imagine if you if you try and focus in on just one state and put all your time and energy into that every year you can be pretty successful but then you have more opportunity by going to different states, but you could also burn yourself out and probably get yourself spread a little bit too thin where all of a sudden you don't have success in any of the places you're not spending enough time in any of those particular locations. So what's your balance? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, the most I've ever hunted for out of state has been my home state of Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota in one year. Um, but typically for me, it's, I hunt my home state of Minnesota, you know, opener through um, mid to late October, and then I usually plan all my out-of-state hunts during the rut. Um, I do, I am a big believer in, in hunting uh, buck beds, and I think you can be successful doing that earlier in the season, but um, I just have a ton of fun going out when it's rut and everything's crazy, deer running around. You also got the a lot of the crops are out of the field, so a lot of the areas that I'm hunting now, the deer are more concentrated into the cover. So I think it increases your odds uh, as well as far as that goes. So I would say typically, uh, specifically now too, that I've got three little ones and um, am married, it's just Minnesota and one, one place out of state. And I kind of rotate between years that I'll draw Iowa uh, and years that I don't. So if I'm not hunting Iowa, I'm hunting somewhere else. Okay, and would you say that typically too, from like an early season standpoint, it's easier to hunt closer to home where you're able to keep tabs on things versus trying to drive someplace out of state and just be totally fresh and not know exactly what's going on versus the rut when you can hunt terrain versus hot sign, so yeah, to speak? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I actually try to kind of try to make it my goal to get find and get on a, a deer here in Minnesota as early as possible. Last year was a pretty good example of that. Um, I have a property where I can 
go out and spot from a distance with the spotting scope. And I took the girls out one of the one of the nights. My wife, I think, was out with some girlfriends or something. And I said, "Hey, let's go spot some deer." So we watched from the car, and I watched uh, a five-year-old buck I was familiar with come out to the alfalfa field um, two nights before opener. And then I went back and watched him do it again the next night from a you know a slightly different trail. So then that opening evening, I went and did a run and gun set and tried to set up where I thought he would come out. And he skirted me by about 100 yards. And then I went back in the next day, set a new stand and had him skirt me about 60 yards. Um, then I worked that whole week and we had a good, uh, I don't know if it was, I would say it was somewhat of a cold front in Minnesota that second weekend. It wasn't like a 30 degree drop or anything like that, but we had you know a switch in winds, we had high pressure. Um, and I moved in one more time I was able to shoot him on the third time out, coming out to that alfalfa field. And did you already know about where that buck was bedded <laughs> in that case, or did you just see the deer and just have to make some assumptions? Um, so I, I can't say I know exactly where I knew where he was bedded, but I had a pretty good idea because I had hunted that deer a little bit last year, and on October, I think it was 12th or the 20th, I don't know which one it was, uh, I was sitting near a bedding area and I watched him coming back in the morning and saw the trail that he had, had come down. So I actually set up um, a camera on that trail earlier in the year and had caught him a couple times coming through there. It wasn't a cell camera, though I do run a lot of cell cameras. So I found out um, later that he was coming through there. But um, I had an idea based on what his travel pattern was last year when he was using that food source that he might be doing the same thing. So I tried to, I'm seeing like 20 to 30 deer on this alfalfa field. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of play it. I couldn't play it too close to the bedding because there was a really good um, chance I would bump a lot of deer. Um, and the night that I shot him, I had probably 15 deer come through that um, I, I passed a, 130 or so inch 10 that was like a three-year-old 10 minutes before i shot my buck and had you not already done that glassing beforehand and known that that buck was there that would have been a lot more tempting oh for sure yeah i mean for sure it would have been um i knew he was a little bit younger and and um my dad and brothers hunt too but i kind of had my eye on this on this deer i like to hunt deer that are a little older if possible I'm not saying i don't shoot um, three and three-year-olds, you know, if uh, if a good one comes by, but if I know there's a, a five-year-old making daylight movement, like that's I set my goal on that. Um, and I went. I mean, he was a he was a nice eight-pointer. I don't I don't score any of my deer, but he was. Is that it wasn't one, like this a, one right here. Nope, uh, I don't even have him back yet. He's actually at the taxidermist right now. Oh, okay. So he's he'll be up. I actually got a text from the taxidermist today which is kind of coincidence that he had it on the form you know where he doesn't have the hide on it yet but he's got the antlers yep screwed in i was like oh that looks awesome <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that was so early season if possible try to make a move on them if they're if they're daylight active if they're not like then i just kind of sit back scout i run um spartan cameras too so i'm setting those up on um multiple different properties trying to watch what's coming through in daylight and if i have one i can move on i definitely will or i'll try to sit like an observation sit um 
you know, where I can see a lot of deer and see what they're doing. Otherwise, I kind of sit back and hold out on uh, um, burning out any of my properties. I'll kind of jump yeah. around, maybe shoot a doe here or there, but I'll wait till later October or, or when like a good cold front comes through or you see like the, you know, you get a bunch of um, northerly winds and that first or second south wind where that pressure starts to climb up above 30 again. Yep. Like I'm out there every time. Like I will take, especially if it's, you know, if it's a good one or there's a good, you're seeing below average temperatures, I'll take an afternoon off to go hunt. Yeah. And then when you're running those, those cell cams, are you putting them in places where they're a little bit deeper and you're expecting that if he's moving during daylight, he's going to be like, they're relatively in close to a spot where you would set up or are you running those cameras closer to fields? Um, both. It kind of depends. Like if I'm just trying to take inventory, then it'll be closer to a field or nowhere. A lot of deer are, are going through. But, um, if I take inventory in the summer, I know he's, he's there, he's on the property or likely will be when he sheds velvet, I'll move them in closer to where I kind of think they're bedding, try to find a, something that pinches down their movement um, and hopefully try to get on one of his exit trails out to, to feed so that I can get, you know, kind of get an idea of when they're moving through. Um, I had a deer I shot here in Minnesota two years ago, I had a cell cam where I did just that. I was coming into October and I was getting this buck coming through every couple of days, every couple of days. And it would be, um, you know, at dark, maybe an hour past dark. And then as you got closer to like October 20th, 21st, 22nd, started to get a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier. Um, and I was kind of watching, um, I do watch the moon a little bit too. So I'm watching not the phases, but like when it's overhead or under, yep. underfoot. So I had a correlation with that coming up towards the end of the October. So I knew that would be kind of a, uh, I kind of think of it as like a, um, a multiplier or it helps or enhancer. I don't think that it's like, it's everything, but we had a cold front that came through in, um, I think it was like October 26th or something like that. Yep. And I knew like, okay, I need to be in there. He was getting closer. He should be, this is kind of his core. There's a good opportunity. He's the biggest deer around that he might be kind of antsy start cruising around kind of seeing if there's a doe and i shot him at three o'clock in the afternoon like oh, really? october 26th wow i've noticed that too in, in some of the spots around here where if i am running cams it always seems like that that time frame more or less in october just a big tick upwards in deer movement during daylight yeah i don't know if it's minnesota or if it's everywhere but i i have buddies that hunt down in southeast minnesota that swear that last week they'd rather hunt like the 25th through halloween than the first week of november and when i travel out of state to hunt i hunt the dakotas um north dakota uh quite a bit south dakota a little bit um i never go to like the second week of november i feel like the big the big deer move pretty well early october that first through the sixth or so i've never had the best luck yeah but bring like the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, that's when I start to see the big deer move. I see a lot of two-year-olds, some three-year-old deer move that first week in November, but uh, I'd rather bank on, you know, most of my hunts are like the 8th through the 16th. Yeah, and I've noticed some of that too when we used to always hunt up by the Duluth area. 
you'd see some deer movement in the beginning of November, but it seemed like you start seeing bigger deer around like the 8th through 15th. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know those out, those out of state trips. Are you? Can you hunt with archery concurrently with their firearm seasons, or do you always have to kind of play into that too? Uh, North Dakota, you can. Um, you just got to wear orange, I imagine. Yeah, you got to wear orange. Um, and I have killed two or three of my bucks during their gun season. What okay. I've found out there, um, if you're not familiar with North Dakota, it's super hard as a resident to get a tag. Oh, really? To get a rifle tag, you can't. As a resident, it might take you four, you know, depending on where you are, but it might take you four years to get a rifle tag. Well, and as a non-resident, it's pretty much impossible, right? Right. So the gun pressure is not as um, as bad other than you've got your, your guys with landowner tags, and sometimes they don't abide by all the state regs, so they might be driving around looking for the deer that they want to shoot. Um, but other than that, they mostly road hunt. So if you're willing to get off the beaten path... Um, you can see success during their gun season. And their gun season opens like the 8th or 9th of November. So, um, yeah, it's kind of opens right during prime time. Yeah, the experiences that I've had with people who've hunted in North Dakota that were residents, it's like quite a, being in Minnesota and going to school there, there's a lot of guys from North Dakota that would come to school, basically. They came to college from North Dakota. and yeah. Of the ones that were big deer hunters, a lot of times they would go back and, like you said, they'd they'd road hunt, just drive around and look at those fields until they'd see something basically that they were after, get out with the rifle, get into position and shoot it. And they'd, they would <coughs> shoot some really nice deer doing that. Yeah, um, I mean, you can see forever out there, and they're shooting rifles where they could take something down at, what, 300 yards. So they don't, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's a bad way to hunt. Like, they're pretty successful at it, but if you get into a big patch of crp or you get off the beaten path where they can't really see from the road like you can get into some pretty good deer movement for sure yeah so i <clears throat> i bought a tag this year for north dakota and we're going out there on the opener okay with the thought that you can come back with the thought that yeah and i picked a spot specifically originally you know after talking to you i was trying to pick a spot that was going to be a good rut area yep. that would give me a lot of good natural pinch points a lot of good funnels between bedding areas and things like that. So mm -hmm. that was kind of how I picked the area that I wanted to go into. But then figuring I can go out there early season, maybe get on something, do some glassing, and maybe find like a hot alfalfa field or something like that. And if I don't get it done, I can always have the option to come back later and hunt some of those funnels after some scouting with some boots on the ground. Yeah, that's definitely very doable. Um, like you would just use all your optics and look for the green fields early and bring uh, uh, the mosquito, what are they called? Thermosel? Yeah, bring like four of those. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple buddies that hunt early out there and they hunt by <clears throat> sloughs and potholes and they're, they're pretty bad. The bugs yeah, bet. can be, so. Well, I mean, they're bad here. I have to imagine it's just as bad out there. Yeah, it's real bad, so. So then when you're, when you're hunting around here, it sounds like you have is it family land or just land that you have permission on? Um, yep, just permission land. Um, <clears throat> I actually do a ton of door knocking. Like, I do it. I'd say that you can see I've found a lot of sheds, <clears throat> but I've kind of switched gears to where rather than shed hunting, I'm spending that because I don't like I don't have that much time on weekends or after work for an hour or two. I'm spending that time actually knocking on doors 
trying to get in <clears throat> on places close to the metro and that kind of stuff. And then uh, I get on as many places as I can. I put cameras out and then I just whittle them down to the places where I want to concentrate. And um, when I hunt out of state, like for Iowa, I do the same kind of thing. Like I actually did a couple years ago, one of the first couple years I hunted Iowa, I used um, Onyx and searched, you know, based on like river systems and the yep. zone that I wanted to hunt. I found 130 different um, farmers or people that I wanted to contact, made a big Excel spreadsheet. Then I spent some time kind of crafting up what I wanted to say to them or kind of scripted it sure. out. And then I called 130 different farmers and just explained, you know, hey, my my family or my in-laws live down in Iowa. We go down every year. I'm only going to be hunting for about a week during the rut. Uh, understand that you got some good-looking deer uh, area, and you likely probably gun hunt it or, or maybe even hunt it yourself. I'm looking to kind of bounce around between a couple different properties and was wondering if it would be all right to hunt your, your property maybe two, three days max. And I had pretty good success, I think, on the 130 people I called I got on 12 different farms yeah and then I went down in the summer and just put cameras out everywhere and then came back checked the cameras late summer determined what areas had the you know the best deer numbers and densities and obviously the the bigger bucks and then I concentrated on those six farms when we went down and hunted so you feel like it's and I mean obviously if you got a dozen like that's enough do you feel like you almost get too many like you, you call too many places, like where it's going to be hard to maintain relationships with that many landowners, or do you feel like it's not really that big of a deal? And once you find the best out of those twelve, those are probably the ones you're going to go back to anyway. Yeah, that's like, I would say relationships are super key when you do get in on a, a private piece to try to keep them up. One thing about Iowa is they uh, they know that you're not going to be back for a while, you know, because it takes a few years to draw. Yep. So it's not as pertinent to be have, try to keep up those relationships or or got, go out of your way. So <clears throat> I I try to get on as many as possible, and then I hunt a ton of public too. So I I probably even though I got on those farms, I hunted half public, half private, um, and both uh, my buddy and I did shoot nice deer. And are you hanging cameras on the public too, or just the private? I do hang cameras on public, yeah. Yep, cheap ones. Yeah. <laughs> and I put them up, uh, you know, 10 or 12 feet, bring yeah. in a stick, hang them up, angle them down, um, just on trails, and then come back and check them. I camo them a little bit if need be, if they really stand out. But, yeah, if, if they're, I've had it. I've had people, you know, either had a stick or they scaled the tree and, stole the camera and I guess just a risk you take but it is kind of nice to have a little bit of inventory when you go down there um when I go hunt North Dakota the first day or two I will run and, and just drop cameras all over the place sell cameras too and I'll put them pretty close to the road because I'm not necessarily looking for um a daylight picture of a you know a, a big deer but I want to know oh, there's the drop time buck. He was here at 10 o'clock last night, right next to the road, you know. Maybe he's feeding or he's in a little, um, up near somebody's house or whatever, a grove, et cetera. Yep. Put it on a scrape or something like that. <clears throat> then you just do the math backwards. Okay, he was here at 10. That's three hours after sunset. What was he doing for three hours before sunset? And you kind of draw a circle around that area and say, okay, 
if I was him, where would I be bedded and how long would it take me to get three hours? What, you know, is it November 10th where he's probably cruising big time at this point? Or is it earlier where maybe he's still on a feeding pattern or something like that? So you can kind of gauge he's probably bedded closer. He might be bedded out there. And then once you've got those nighttime images, you kind of have an area to at least zone in. And then I'll hunt like some tree rows where I can see a long ways. And the I shot one and so I've shot a couple of my last two deer in North Dakota have been like November 8th or 10th and it's been like negative 10 below. And I know some people think deer don't move when it gets too cold, but I'll tell you in North Dakota, if the pressure's high, I think it was like 30.3, negative 10, those bucks were moving. Yeah. It's just whether or not like, you know, how long can you stay out there? And both of them that I've shot were in the morning were like within an hour and a half after sun sunrise. So um, I don't do a lot of blind calling, but um, both of them that I shot, saw them out from kind of, I was in a thin tree row where I could see long ways into CRP. Saw them, did a little bit of rattling. As soon as they look, stop rattling, stop calling. You don't want to draw any more attention to exactly where you are and just let them get curious and kind of work their way in. I was able to do a couple fawn, or not fawn, but dull bleats and a couple like tending grunts later he worked a scrape and came in to 25 and shot him. So when, you, when you're set up with that in mind that you might want to be able to use sound to bring a deer in, mm -hmm. are you also, when you're initially picking your spot, looking for like, you know, a tree row that has CRP or something around it that can obscure vision to make him guessing and make it so that he can't just see that there's just a, an empty tree row and nothing underneath it? Yep, yep. So. A lot of places you'll find tree rows where there's a T, where one north-south tree row hits a east-west. Yep. So I try to get in, a, you know, right at the tip on something like that. So they don't know if the, you know, where you're calling from is in which tree row, right? They can kind of have a vicinity of where it is, and it does break up your cover a little bit. And that's that was a situation when I got that one. He came through my tree row, made a scrape in the snow on the other tree row, and then I did a couple calls to get him to kind of come back around. He okay. got curious enough and then shot him. And when you're, when you're scoping out a place like the Dakotas where you can see a long ways, and let's say you're going to a new area, whether you're knocking on doors or whether you're hunting public or whatever, are you, are you basically trying to get as much intel as you can from the road before you ever step out of the vehicle? Or are there some spots where you look at the map and say, I want to check out this spot regardless of of what I see just driving around to get some boots on the ground to, to see what's out there in terms of sign. Yeah, so the latter part of that where I am want to see what's out there, want to go check it out, I'll go out and shed hunt in North Dakota um, and hit a bunch of the, the cover I find on maps, uh, you know, ahead of time to see what kind of signs in there so I kind of know how the, the lay of the ground is. Yep. Um, but in season, I'm doing a ton of, like, MRI or most recent information. I've got a, like I had a crazy cool story last year. Um, my friend has a friend that's a mailman in North Dakota. So we were, you know, hunted the day. Uh, I was with a buddy out there who had seen a nice four-year-old that evening. So he was pretty much determined that he was gonna go back there. And I had decided we had a lot of different spots we could jump to between public. And I didn't know where I was gonna hunt yet. And his buddy was texting him. He's like, I saw a huge buck with a doe across the road right here. Um, 
and this was the second day in a row. He saw it in the morning, and then he saw it in the evening in the same area across the road, and there was no trees. It was just CRP and potholes. So we're like, huh. Well, you got, when someone tells you they, see, they saw a huge buck, you're always like, well, what's huge? You know, yeah. like, well, okay, and you're Best doing that thing player. with your hands. Like, was <laughs> it like this? Was, you know, so it ended up, you know, confirming that it was a, a big deer. Um, so we left the uh, um, little restaurant that night. It was like 10 o'clock. We drove down that dirt road. We had Onyx up. We were looking at the CRP grass and the different potholes that are in there, knowing that he said, when I crested the hill, I saw this buck and doe cross here. We're kind of like, okay, it looks like there's they're feeding here. Um, we got out of the truck and we walked the road. We're like, okay, here's some big tracks coming across the road. I wonder if this is him. And you could kind of see, well, here's a pretty, pretty. there's a couple pretty main trails here. He said just across the hill, looking at the map, like, okay, there's a pothole right here. If they cross here, they're gonna probably skirt this edge of this pothole and then kind of wrap back around into this thick cover. So that next morning, I parked about a half a mile down the road, snuck in there in my ghillie suit and sat 55 yards off the road in my ghillie suit. And I had trucks popping gravel right by me like all morning. And I'm like, this is dumb, this is stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, but they can't, they couldn't see me. They had no idea I was right. in there sitting in like, maybe I'd say chest high. It was a little lower than chest high grass and then right behind me was taller grass. I'm sitting there at like 8.30 wondering like, are these deer gonna come across? Are we gonna see anything? And I hear brrrr, like, oh, that was a grunt, you know? So I stand up and I hear it again and I sneak with the ghillie right around this edge and I see his rack turning in the cat sails. He was bedded with that doe 30 yards from me the whole time. Like I snuck in there and somehow got close enough to him right on the edge of that pothole that he was there in the dark and then he just you know decided just, to grunt to make it, some yeah. move and there was a smaller buck that came in earlier that was like where did he come from and why is he here and i kind of was like is there a hot doe around here like why is this little buck all by himself like just kind of had you know head hall tall looking around i was like something's up so five minutes later that buck grunted maybe because he knew that other buck was in the area i don't know so i snuck to the edge of the cattails ranged his rack and it was like 30 so yards and got an arrow knocked grunted and then he starts to come out into this opening when all the cattails were laid down i'm like oh here he comes i draw back he sticks his neck out just his neck and turns and i'm like pin right on his neck like oh no please come please come he wouldn't he wouldn't walk out and then he bounded out like one bound, two bound, stopped for a second. I kind of winged one off, hit my ghillie suit, arrow shot over his back, and then he took off. <laughs> but I'm, he was like a 170 for real. Really? Like one of the biggest deer I've ever missed. But it just goes, and I've had, I've missed a couple on the ground out there. So this like going out on a hill on a, in a CRP field in a ghillie suit and just making a move when you see a deer is super doable out there. And yeah, a heck of a lot of fun. Because I was going to say, is there like a certain type of, habitat or terrain out there that you you key in on or you prefer to hunt in and with the mobile strategy like what's your preferred method and obviously sound it sounds almost to me like you're not as focused on what the habitat is like as much as is there a big deer around and then figure out how to get them yep Uh, yeah and there's there is there's some of that because there's always a couple big ones around and there's a there's also the 
okay, here's a, a mile long tree row that's 70 yards wide, right? It's the widest, thickest tree row around. There will be deer coming through here. So you can set up on something like that too. Um, but then they like, some of those big ones like the wide open areas too. I think maybe they feel a little more secure rather than coming through. Like when I'm hunting those big tree rows, I never have the deer, the big ones come through the middle. You know, you're set up on a nice trail in the Skirting middle. The edge. They're gonna skirt the downwind edge yeah. and they're gonna pretty much be trotting down it. You know, trying to catch scent of a doe and then they're, they're travel so much in North Dakota. We'll get a picture of a buck and then three, you know, three hours later, he's seven miles away. Just ridiculous. How about in Iowa? Do you hunt different, do you focus on different types of habitat down there? Yeah, Iowa, um, I've hunted, you know, the flat, flat, farm ground in Iowa where there's um, those type of areas where you're like, okay, if they shotgun hunt this, they're gonna kill everything. Cause you know they can walk through it and cover everything. Yeah. And then I've hunted some really steep terrain too along rivers. And I, I really enjoy that. I like to, so uh, you know that intra Iowa again this year, third year. Um, but I still go down to scout it every, every winter. And I don't know if you can see over there on the wall, but I've got like a, those know, maps 48 inch map of all the public that i hit with yep. a lot of you know like pins on where i've been and where so I, I go down every spring and i break it apart and hunt hit different sections mark it all up on onyx another great app is gps kit i don't know if you've heard of that it's an older I app i have um what i like about that is it works like onyx um but you can take a picture of what you see and then mark it oh sure and then you can also export it into um, google earth so I like to do that, and then I'll go into Google Earth, and you can change the, um, you know, the year obviously of the terrain you're looking at. So you can pick not only the time of year and the shadow of the sun, but you can do the year or two, and you can pick a year where you can see all the different transition lines of cover, which has helped me out a lot. And then you can overlay all your trails that you've walked, all your pictures you've seen, and then when I'm hunting that hilly stuff. I'll go in and you can change um, uh, like an elevation thing in Google Earth where it like multiplies or yep. magnifies the elevation. So when you spin that Google Earth, you can really see like, okay, here's the two knobs that I think most of the deer live on. Here's two hogbacks coming down to the main river. Um, and some of the areas I'll key in on is I'll find that really steep terrain and I'll find like some big, um, I call them knobs or flats that's where a lot of the does like to hang out. They'll hang, it all, hang out on those flats. The bucks usually will bet out on the points, maybe down the hogback a little bit, mm -hmm. but they all kind of funnel out to the, the feed in the evening. So I like to get in between uh, a couple of the biggest ones I can find on public that are hard to get to, meaning hard to get to like parking spots are a long ways away. And if they do come in that way, they're gonna scare every deer out. Yep. Um, and then I like to find like some big deep ravines to kind of sit up on the top. So you got your you know, a top field funnel type, or if you can get down along the river off a, a real steep hill and on the other side of the river, it's flat. Yep. You're in a good spot if you've got the wind coming from the hill going that way, because you're not going to see as much of the swirling winds if you're down in a river bottom and you've got high ground above you on one side and both sides. You know what I mean? So like if I can find a pretty steep, hill that comes down to a river that's got 
a knob north of me, knob south of me, I can get on a trail that a buck might be cruising, in, you know, down in the bottom with, let's say it's a, a north-south river with a west wind and on the east side of the river, it's just a flat cornfield for a mile. Yeah. There's a good chance that my wind, especially if you're hunting in the morning, your thermals are going to go up and the wind's going to kick you over. You're not going to get a bunch of that, that tumbling, tumbling or um, wind coming back where the deer are going to smell you. Because that's always one of the biggest issues hunting low in the hills is dealing with the wind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, you know, they've got, um, you look like where a bunch of ravines dumped down and you've got like that thermal f funnel down there where bucks always like to have big scrapes. Yep. And they, they, they like being down there because they can smell everything. It's all swirling down in there. But if you can find a steep bluff and on the other side of the river, you've got something pretty flat, you can come in from the river like the spot where I shot, uh, that one over there was public Iowa. And my buddy and I, my buddy and I um, in the summer drove down. We got permission from a landowner to launch a canoe on their property. Then we drove down two miles and put a bike in the woods on public on the other side of the river. And then we canoed down, went into this property from the river, set up on a kind of what I was explaining here, where it was flat on one side and not on the other, set up some spots and cameras. And then we rode the canoe down, grabbed the bike. One guy biked back, got the car, got the canoe. So we did that as like a, a way to access it. Cause there's only one parking lot to the whole property. And it was a super long property and it had a lot of hills. So anybody that had to, that came in would have to jog all the top, you know, every field edge corner, hit like a main trail, like a horse trail, come all the way down to the bottom. Yep. And every deer in there is pretty much going to be aware that you're there. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, access has been pretty key with that deer. I found him by doing the canoe trip. We planned on doing it in November. But we got an east wind, and I'm like, I got an east wind. I know that buck's living in this property. I set up on one of those um, um, field top funnels with a ditch with the east wind blowing out into the field between two knobs, and he came cruising through at 8 o'clock and shot him on my... That, that's one of those type of funnels where... And I, I haven't hunted a ton of that, that steep of type of terrain during the rut, um, but you'll get two very different trains of thought it seems like in terms of how the deer will use that type of a funnel where you get one train of thought where it's like they'll, they'll run the leeward side and in that case you'd be on the windward side of the hill but then in a book like like uh that brad herndon book uh mapping trophy yeah, Matthew, bucks. mapping trophy bucks yep. he calls out that in that type of a funnel you'd want the wind blowing out into the field so you could access it from the field and hunt that that funnel so you're saying and that's that what i did on that one and what happened was the trail he was on was somewhat on the leeward side of the no it was on the it was on the downhill side of the hill so it okay. wasn't the leeward side right so he was and this was such a big cutout like they could not cross under me it was like bad yeah so they had to come across and then it was like a a cow pasture and he was coming through going to jump the fence cut through a cow pasture to um, save some time, I think, to get into another big block of timber over the way. Um, and it so, just happened. So in that to case, too, that regardless of whether it was windward or leeward side of the hill, like, he had a place he needed to get to. Yeah, it was, like, the uh, November 7th, I think, and he was, he was head down cruising. 
just on a nice slow walk coming through. On that big ditch type of hilltop funnel, are you typically, like if you, if you want to know if it's a good one or not, are you typically finding a ton of sign or a really beat down trail going right over the top lip of that? Or is it not that clear sometimes? You just have to put your faith in the power of that funnel? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I've seen it both. Um, I don't, I would say that under this spot I set up, there wasn't a, uh, like a, um, cow path of any, any sort like that. But I just knew that I was on the side of this big block of timber that had two big bedding areas on it. And I knew that he could cruise the, what would be the west side of it pretty quickly and smell anything that had been in there. Yep. Because he was right next to a field, too. So I'm assuming that, you know, Toes were out there at night and maybe came back and maybe he was thinking, oh, I'll just cruise this edge and see if any does that were feeding in that field at night cross back into bed and perhaps they're in heat. And I think he was just covering ground. And so when he's running that field edge, the wind's blowing out into the field, not only are you getting that wind blowing from the woods out to him, but also the thermals are probably rising up toward that hill. So he's really getting the... He's, yeah, he's getting some of the bottom too, right? Yeah. And he's he can see the field, so he's, you know, um, he wasn't right on the edge. He was probably 60, 70 yards, no, probably 60 yards in the in the woods, but he can see any danger too approaching from the field. Cause and, that, a, and that 60 yards in is probably as deep into the woods as he could get with, with the a, terrain? Before dropping down the yeah. edge, yeah. I mean, he could go out on that knob, but then he, he did go out on the knob, and then he wrapped back in right by me which brought him 15 yards from the fence line. Yeah. And then he was about to, you know, jump into this uh, pasture, which would have been wide open, wide open for him to go, but there was like, a, you know, houses and more cover, like, so nobody would really see him. Um, yeah. And he'd be, there are a lot of know, those type of, a lot of that type of terrain and those type of funnels down in southeast Minnesota too, after scouting that, pretty common. Yep. Um, when I'm doing a lot of my scouting too in Iowa or even North Dakota, when I'm looking a lot of public, I'm looking for human sign as well. And I'm sure most of the people that are listening to this do the same thing. But you see a stand in a tree, you kind of think, okay, how long has that been sitting there? Is it just an old stand or is it grown into the tree? You look at the strap, how far is it grown into the tree? It's been there for a long time. I will often take like a stick and like wedge it in the stand like it fell or broke off the tree and wedge it in there enough that the wind's not going to blow it out and then when i come back through i'll be like okay if somebody sat in that stand they had to move that stick stick. yeah so i'll do that um sometimes and also just kind of when you get into these kind of hot spots that every guy that knows you know about hunting is like okay here's like a big scraper here's a classic funnel i'm like not looking for stands but also looking like has anybody trimmed anything here recently? You can see where, you know, most guys trim something off, they'll leave it. You can see it clear as day, they cut that branch, right? So I'm looking at the branch too to say, okay, has anything sprouted since it was cut like right in front of the cut? Like if you cut like a buckthorn down, you wait a year or two and it's just like, you know, it just blows yeah. up, right? So you can tell, okay, yeah, somebody hunted here, but all this stuff has sprouted out since then. If they were still hunting here, they probably would have cut it more, or maybe they, you know. So I'm looking for human sign like that too, just like who's in here, how how much pressure is it getting? 
has this ladder stand been sitting here and it only gets hunted by gun or is there you know anything that tells me otherwise yeah that's the that seems like the biggest thing for me when i'm finding stands and stuff like that because i mean even the stuff around the cities there's there's stands all over the place right and so it's like you know if it does look recent and a lot of times you find scent wicks along yeah. with the stands it's like okay if i see a scent wick that doesn't guarantee that it's a gun hunter right but with our firearm season coinciding with the rut if there's like a ladder stand and a scent wick in my mind it always kind of especially if there's a lot of deer signs still around yeah that to me kind of says like it might just be a gun hunter who comes in here is one week out of the year and then he's gone for the rest of it yeah i i definitely think about that and i also think about like i'm crazy about hunting and how many days did i hunt last year really not that many maybe uh maybe 15 maybe so like if this guy's just out here casually he probably hunted even less than i did right you know so i don't get too turned off by seeing other stands and stuff um, but i do you know the, there's that balance too like try to get as far away from everybody as possible which everybody kind of talks about like get away from it go to the where the deer feel unpressured but at the same time, some of those unpressured spots are like right next to the road because everybody walks right. around. Yeah, I, I've noticed that even out west too. Like when we've gone hunting for elk, it's like everybody, you get this mindset, you have to go in deep, you gotta walk in five, six, seven miles or whatever. And you end up walking right past a whole bunch of fresh sign to get to the deep stuff. And then you find out that there's a bunch of horse camps back there anyway. And a lot of times it's like the same type of thing when we're hunting whitetails. Yeah, it's amazing. You like. Go, spend all that effort to get back there and you're like oh there's a camera here yeah <laughs> wow they really walked back here you know so when you see a ladder stand like a mile and a half back it's like i kind of give the guy props for carrying this thing so yeah it's like good for you <laughs> <laughs> right no so i'd say too um i do a lot of mobile hunting yeah growing up i didn't uh, like it's something i learned over time like that you'd have a good sit in the stand and then you'd go back the next weekend and it would be a little bit not quite as good and you do that over and over and over for a few years and you're like man i just think that first sit's the best sit yeah so you start you know scouting from afar and moving in and sitting up um each time and for ever and i still do use uh like a lone wolf hang on and either the muddy pro sticks lone wolf sticks or i've got those new helium sticks i'm excited about trying now that you helped me out with a little buttoning mechanism yeah. there to kind of nest them together um i've been doing that like almost every sit is a different tree even if it's only 20 yards away like um i set my stuff i take it down with me almost every time i hunt um when i hunt out of state i will leave like the sticks up if i felt like it was a good spot yeah but i'll take my saddle platform down or or I have multiple lone wolves, so maybe I'll leave a couple here and there. So are but, you are you more one way or the other in terms of saddle versus stand versus ground? I'm kind of a I'm a pretty good mix, I would say. Um, I'd prefer the saddle in any t type of straight tree that's you know basketball size or smaller. Mm -hmm. Saddle super comfortable. It's light to get in. You get up there, you can shoot 360. And it's, you know, taking it down is super easy too, right? If you're like, oh, this spot wasn't any good, it's easy to get out of there quick and quiet. Um, if I'm hunting like cedar or, you know, a tree with a ton of different branches 
that a lone wolf sits in there nice like i'll definitely do that like i'll set some stands only 12 feet off the ground in a cedar or something if i got mm -hmm. good back cover and um stands just seem to work a lot better for that type of tree and then hunting from the ground is just a blast so if you can if it seems like a a good method to go about hunting and you're seeing deer in open areas and you think you can kind of sneak in their spot stock like i have at it it's a blast it's a lot of fun so when you're going out for an out-of-state trip you got everything in the back of the truck and you're just picking whatever you think you might need based on what you're seeing yep yep i've got um the wild edge steps that i'm gonna try to deploy this year um i've got a few of those i've got a five-step aider that i may try with those um just to if i find any spots that are you know way back there Mm -hmm. want to go on light and just try it for an evening or something that would be a good option um and then i'll i prefer the some sort of stick whether the muddy pros which are really quiet and getting up they're a little bit heavier and then those those helium sticks got the double step they nest well together um i'm doing a uh am steel daisy chain to attach yep. them so that's a super lightweight kind of a uh, way to attach to the tree. And I know that um, Tethered had something out now too that will work kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, a Dyneema daisy chain basically. Yep, so there's, that gets rid of the buckle for those that don't know what that is. You can you go to like Saddle Hunter um, Facebook page or forum. You can learn as much as you want about that kind of stuff. But um, there's guys out there now getting those, you know, getting a set of sticks. I don't know, how, how light are yours? Like two... I think so all like rigged up with you know my stealth strips and my uh, strap and nader and whatever else three sticks in a bundle ready to go is like right around six pounds if you look at my bear stick they're like one and a half I think six pounds and you can probably get 15 to 20 feet yeah I mean that's crazy that's crazy to me so um, that's I think that's the best way to get up a tree in and out quietly and quickly when you're carrying sticks, are you bringing a pack into, or how are you carrying those things? <clears throat> um, yeah, so I have something that Lone Wolf made, and you could use um, multiple other things to do this, but it's just like a, a strap, and on both sides of the strap it has um, kind of a setup where you can kind of belt it around your stick, so you can kind of carry it like a uh, a bag. Yeah, it's like, like a, backpack, like, like a like, duffel bag strap yeah, kind of? Yep. yep. Basically, I carry that kind of cross-chest, so it kind of holds them on my right side. My bow is in my left hand, typically. And then I'll have a, a small pack on my back with uh, maybe my like my saddle platform and my deer call I'll have in there. Um, and I do use the Ozonics, too. Just um, I think it might give me a little edge. I'm, I'm not like saying you can't hunt with it or you, you do, but... I use a, I built an ozone like um, tote that I put all the gear that I'm wearing that day and I, yep. it plugs right into my car um, that I charge my stuff or ozone my stuff when I go out. And then I've got like a big commercial like ozone unit that I'll hang my stuff in a closet and just blast in there for a little bit. So you're basically using that as like a purge every day? <clears throat> yep, I'll, I'll purge my stuff in, in that wood I'm wearing out there. And then 
if it's like real windy, I won't even take the ozone out. But if it's like a pretty calm day, um, and it's not 30 below, like, and it's, you know, I'll throw the ozonics up because it's like I've got it yeah. as well. Is there any? Have you ever had any like experiences where you're like, I don't know if it works or not, but like that was pretty hard to say that it at least didn't didn't hurt for sure. Or, you know, might have helped or. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not, yeah, exactly. I'm not looking for like a five year old buck to come by and be like, ozone for sure. You know, he stuck around for three minutes. I'm like, I got an extra two seconds to get an arrow in him, and it might have been because I had the ozone like shooting right at his face, and he was like what the heck is that, you know, before he figured it out. So, um, yeah, well, I've definitely had, you know, does and stuff come through and not sent me, but it could, it could be a lot of things. It could be that my boots never leave my tote. You know, I don't drive in them or anything. The only time they come out is when I put them on outside the car to walk to the stand and then I put them right back in the totes. They've never touched anything, but what I walk using in. rubber boots for just about everything or. <clears throat> yeah, I have, I've got muck rubber boots that I use. Um, a couple of things that I use that um, some people don't that I think I like so I wanted to at least ex- talk about them on the chat and people can look them up if they want to are um, Gerbing heated socks they come with a lithium battery they're pretty expensive but they're they're great like those two the last couple of years in North Dakota where I shot the deer at negative 10 yep. I just had rubber boots on with these gerbing heated socks and you, they have like four different settings keep my feet toasty warm and then the batteries last for depending on what setting obviously four to six hours okay and then i just charge them up like at night use them again you just wear like a liner sock in, in them yep <clears throat> yeah, I'm, Those, glad, I'm glad you you mentioned that because that's actually something i've been looking into this year so i had a heated vest last year and really like that it yeah, Gerbing like, makes those too, right? It's, it seems like half the, the time the issue with the cold feet is that you bring a, a heavy boot out of the truck to stay warm, and then you, your feet sweat, sweat when they get yeah. cold. It's like if you can wear a similar concept as the vest, you get away with a little bit, maybe less light of a jacket. Wear a lighter jacket out there while you're walking, and then you get set up, maybe put another jacket on, and then once you start getting cold after like an hour, then you just turn it on. You flip the switch, yep, exactly. And that's kind of, I don't turn them on, obviously, until... So I've been out there for a little while, yeah. yeah. And I think that's part of it. Like, these are just regular muck boots that, I mean, they have some insulation, but they're not like the super insulated ice kings or anything like that, right? right? So so I do wear rubber boots. I have, like, danners and stuff that I'll use also, but I don't know I, if it's just ingrained in me that I've always worn rubber boots for whitetails, so I've just kind of stuck with it. Um I'll wear, like, out to the field, I'll just wear, like, some Crocs or slip-on shoes or something like that. Um, I wear a lot of merino wool and layer it. So um, a fan of First Light, I think both First Light and Sitka make really good stuff. I have, happen to have most of my stuff's all First Light. So for winter, um, their Sanctuary suit is hard to beat. Yeah. Super warm. I like that. It's got zippers all the way up your legs, all the way up to your butt, basically, on both sides. So walking out to the tree, you can pretty much open them up to get some airflow and then zip them up when you get there. And then the jacket's super warm, too. And it has, like, a spot to put hand warmers back by, you know, on the back, small of your back or 
kidney area, which is nice. And then early season, um, the Catalyst pants and the Woodbury jacket was what I wear. Catalyst is a soft shell? Yeah, it's like their soft shell. And I was looking at their website and they changed a lot of their names. So yeah, um, it's their soft shell pant. Um, and their Woodbury jacket is like similar to the Sanctuary jacket, just way less insulation. Yeah, um, I, I was looking at their site the other day and I don't know that I found an apples to apples replacement for the Woodbury, but it seemed like they had a, a soft shell top that was kind of filling that role as like a mid-season whitetail jacket. Yeah, and they got like a sawtooth or something shirt or jacket too. Yeah, I don't like know, a, like, a hybrid merino yeah. and, and nylon or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as calling goes, I, I, I mentioned I don't blind call very much. Um, I used to. I used to blind call all the time, but I've kind of learned over time that I think it did more harm than dan or harm than good. So now I'll call like I called one in from the CRP last year in North Dakota that was just cruising through, and I rattled a little bit, looked over, came in, um, and he just came right in. I didn't have to like grunt or anything for him. Um, but the most realistic grunt call, so the one that I like the most, is made by Dual. It's called the Stretchback. Um, Todd Prignus told me about it. Mm -hmm. Love that guy. Um, and yeah, he kind of got me hooked on it and I bought it and have liked it. I think it's really realistic. You can do the dough and stuff through it too. You got to pop ones... it off and like move the O-ring and stuff, yeah, yeah. but it, you can. I mostly just leave it on, you know, like a deep, deeper grunt. Um, and then if I'll snort wheeze more, you know, between a grunt and snort wheeze is probably what I use more than anything. Do you use and the I call just, for the snort wheeze or do you do that with your voice? Just my voice, yeah. Had pretty decent luck with that. Um, yeah, I don't know what else. Well, let's see. We talked about your your mobile system and your clo the clothing was one of the things I wanted to hit on because I knew you hunted, have hunted in like really cold weather. Yep. I think... You know, if you were to, if you were to have like a, like a piece of advice or, or strategy for somebody who wants to, maybe, maybe they don't want to, maybe they want to hunt public land, maybe they want to, you know, get on to new private through knocking on doors or something, and they got the the typical work guy schedule of, you know, maybe two weeks off a year and weekends what what's kind of the biggest thing that assuming they're not having much success now that you think they should focus on to to really become more successful and improve their skills um okay there's going to be a few things here so maybe they can take a few of these and put them to use but first you got to be hunting in the right area so make sure you're you're hunting in an area that has deer that that you're you know a good a good crop of deer that you're willing to hunt whether that's you want to hunt you know three-year-old or or younger or you or you want to hunt something bigger you got to be in the right area um network like crazy so build relationships um let people know that you hunt let people know that you're looking to do stuff reach out to people don't be afraid to um ask them i've had you know found a lot of spots just through networking and telling people you know yeah i'd like to hunt north dakota I've, looking at this area, have any advice? Have you hunted out there? I know anybody that hunted out there. I think they'd mind if I call them just to kind of 
at least kind of know where I should target or look, not trying to intrude on where they hunt, but maybe learn some things. Yep. That's led to learning a lot. Um, and then once you find a spot and you get permission, don't burn it out. Wait for the right time and watch. I think weather's super important. So you want to watch where you know a front has come through or you've got below average temperatures, you've got high pressure. I think anything between 30, 30.0 and 30.4 uh, is great pressure. 30.2 is probably like right in the sweet spot. Um, watch your, um, watch for, you know, when your moon's straight above and when it's underfoot. So I think if I remember right, if you look at a full moon, I could be wrong. So you have to, I've got this from the juries. Leading up to a full moon, I think mornings are typically better if I'm right, because the moon is setting in the morning. So it kind of coincides when, when deer would be moving in the morning. And then the first five or six days after a full moon, um, it's rising during, you know, three or four or five o'clock in the afternoon. So the deer, you know, they move kind of with that. And then you can also, you know, look and see when it's directly overhead or underfoot, which is important. And if you've, if you've got, let's say a day that's a bad weather day, bad weather, moon's not doing anything that would be, you know, noteworthy, are you doing something other than hunting those days? Are you trying to stack your actual time in the woods during those days where it is the best and knowing that you're going to not try and overhunt it, just stay out until you know it's good? Or are you maybe hunting in a different area within that, a different spot within that same area during those, those poorer condition days? Yeah. If it was me and let's say it was, um, super hot or something like that. And it's been the same wind direction for the last eight days and just crappy out i'll probably not hunt any of my good stuff for sure i might check some cameras i might do some stuff or i might just like bank it by spending more time with the wife and family knowing that like i'm gonna want to be able to hunt later you know when the time's right so i'm more on the side of don't hunt when it's not right wait till the time's right and you know most of the most of the trips i go on are five days and you know if you time it right and you know the area right you can you know without too much effort have a chance at a respectable buck within that time should have an opportunity um assuming he's there which goes yep assuming that you're in the right area you've done your homework he's there you've got you're putting time in the tree while you're you know in that five days that you're there like you should have at least have a pretty close opportunity i haven't had many where I haven't at least had a deer come by that I could have taken a shot at or had some pretty close calls or tagged out. So, Cool. Well, I think we went over a lot of really good content. I think the listeners are definitely going to take some good tidbits from this. So appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this podcast. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, first podcast, so it was kind of cool. As always with our podcast here on the Sportsman's Nation, Be sure to share a link for your friends, leave us a review on iTunes, and check out the pages on social media. I know our podcast has continued to grow and is doing well, and we really appreciate the support. But not only that, the network as a whole is really growing rapidly, which is very exciting. Thanks for listening.